Hey, my name is Jay Warner Wallace, and I'm the author of Cold Case Christianity. I, I gotta tell you, if you're listening to this radio, you know that you're in a good place, and I cannot endorse more highly the intellect and the passion of your host. So just enjoy this radio program. Is he a real one? Radio is the real thing. And Veda, thank you so much for doing the most important work of the kingdom. Hello out there, this is Bobby Conway. You're listening to Is He a Real One Radio? And I'm now passing the baton off to my man, Veda. Hello everybody, how are you doing? My name is Veda Hedgman and I am the host of Is He a Real One Radio? And I wanna thank you all so much for tuning in. Now, if you're clicking on this video, it is very likely that you know that this is part three of a three-part series, okay? Uh, it's a three-part series where we are discussing uh, Calvinism. We're discussing free will. What is free will? Man's choice to reject Jesus. Does he have a choice to reject Jesus? God's plan, God's sovereignty, etc. okay? As I've said multiple times, I will say again, you listening to this, you watching this, you may or may not be reformed, but we should certainly be informed in the name of Jesus. So we have already interviewed uh, Elder Michael Holloway one-on-one uh, -on -one, and he gave us um, a great teaching, a great exegesis um, defending the non-Calvinistic view of scripture. And after that, we interviewed Matt Slick, who did an amazing job defending his position, they, like he has done hundreds and thousands of times, defending the Calvinistic view. And on today's episode, they will engage each other for our learning pleasure, all right? Now, I've said this on the other two. I will say it on this episode as well, that both of these gentlemen, they believe in the inerrancy of Scripture. They both hold that there are 66 books that belong in the Bible, no more, no less. This disagreement is not a salvific issue. Both of these gentlemen believe in salvation by grace through faith alone, not by works. I can't, you know, start 30 churches and now I've done enough to make it into heaven. Neither of these gentlemen believe in that. That is heresy. And they are firm confessors of the Trinity, the divinity of Jesus Christ. And we are brothers discussing doctrine amongst ourselves and i also want to give a message to the listeners who are listening all right so as we begin i want to strongly encourage you and urge you you know don't worry about who you think has a more attractive style or a more attractive delivery or or anything of that nature my prayer is that we focus on the biblical arguments the biblical basis that are being made and that you ultimately read the bible yourself and of course pray to god yourself you know we certainly ain't you know trying to start a whole new religion a whole new heresy but read the bible be in prayer you know be in communion with our lord and our savior and just follow what the text is saying amen we have two very capable teachers who know what they're talking about they have heard every objection to their position 30 trillion times and this is for our learning pleasure. There, there are not any winners in this. This is for our learning pleasure, and both of these men are blessing us. So before I introduce the speakers, I will say a prayer, and I am super duper excited. I am so excited. Praise the Lord. All right, let us pray. Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus, we thank you so much, Lord God, for the opportunity to learn about you, to study you, to discuss you, Lord. Lord God, you don't owe us anything, yet you're so available to us, yet you gave us 66 love letters for us to read as if, as if you got it 
to explain yourself to us. You don't have to explain yourself to us, Lord God, but you still left us 66 love letters and we just thank you so much, Lord. So Lord God, I pray that I do not say anything that is a, that is a distraction from your glory. I pray that Michael Holloway doesn't say or do anything that is a distraction from your glory. I pray that Matt Slick doesn't say or do anything that is a distraction from your glory. I pray that you are glorified, Lord God, and I pray that the body of Christ is is better because of this conversation. It's in the mighty name of Jesus. We thank you. We honor you, and we worship you. Amen. Amen. All, all right. So with that said, with that said, uh, I will allow both speakers. All right, y'all. So I'll be facilitating this conversation. Uh, both of these gentlemen did receive the, the rules and the program beforehand. So for you guys listening, I was so excited. I didn't even shout out the platforms, man. I'm I'm so excited about this. Listen, if you listen to iHeartRadio, hey, shouts out to you. If you watching and listening on YouTube, thank you. Spotify, SoundCloud, iTunes, um, TuneIn app. If you are listening, we want to thank you so much for tuning in. Now, uh, so Matt Slick and Michael Holloway, they are about to introduce themselves. So this this is how we're going to do this. So I am going to ask each of them to introduce themselves again, say hello, however they so want to. And then I'm going to ask them to explain why they do or do not hold a Calvinistic view. Uh, after you say hello, I will not count. So you have three minutes to, if you want to use up to three minutes, you can. If it's less than that, that's fine too. But after you introduce yourself, you have three minutes to explain why you hold to a Calvinistic view or why you do not hold to a Calvinistic view. So I'm going to start off with, uh, with Michael Holloway. Elder Michael Holloway, thank you again for coming on on part three of this series. And introduce yourself and you can say why you do not hold to a Calvinistic view. And I will start your time after you start explaining your position. Just don't take 30 minutes to introduce yourself <laughs> and, then, <laughs> and, then, and then go into that. <laughs> don't worry. It's not that much to say, but thank you. I certainly appreciate you, Veda, and being invited on this platform. And I'm certainly honored even to be on the platform with Matt Slick. I think he is uh, an asset to the kingdom of God. I enjoy him and have been blessed by his website and resources myself. So I'm honored just, just to be here. So thank you. I'm Elder Mike Holloway, been a member of Power, Hope and Grace Bible Church in the heart of the city of Detroit for about 30 years. I'm an elder, an associate elder, uh, sit, sitting uh, within that ministry. I currently have my bachelor's in biblical studies and currently pursuing my uh, Master in Divinity from Moody Theological Seminary. And I am just grateful to be here. I'm happy, you know, I'm an apologist who uh, defends the faith against uh, cultic and false beliefs uh, on Facebook and YouTube often. And I'm, I'm excited to be here. Thank you for the invitation. And, I, and I'm just ready to get, get into the word of the Lord. Awesome. And why do you not hold to a Calvinistic view? Thank you. I do not hold to a Calvinistic view because I believe that it does not best support what the scriptures are teaching. I believe that the Calvinistic construct was developed later in church history, uh, starting with Augustine, and I don't believe that he fully represented the biblical picture properly. I personally believe that uh, man has free will, uh, probably in a different way that our uh, compatibilist Calvinists would 
with defying free will. I believe that when God created Adam and placed him in the garden, it was not his sovereign purpose for Adam to fall, but it was his sovereign purpose for Adam and the rest of humanity to glorify him. However, God, knowing that Adam would fall, prepared a plan in Christ Jesus for those who believe. I do not believe that God determined before the foundation what individuals would be saved and which ones would go to hell. I believe God determined that those who are in Christ would be blessed and eternally uh, with him forever. And those who reject Christ, they will be damned. And I believe that's what the scripture supports. And I personally believe, though I love my Calvinist brothers, and I do believe that this is a secondary issue, I believe that my Calvinist brothers and their construct, they go too far. And there are implications on God that I don't think are conducive. And I actually think uh, could be uh, error as they represent a God who decrees the fall and other sins and things of that matter that I have a, a major issue with from the Calvinist perspective. But that is the main reason that I am not a Calvinist. Amen. All right. So thank you for that, Elder Holloway. Mike, Matt Slick. Oh, my goodness. Hey, both of y'all names start with an M. I just realized that as I just <laughs> as I almost called Matt, Mike. All right. Matt All right. Slick, uh, thank you so much for your time. If you can introduce yourself and then briefly explain why you do hold to a Calvinistic view. Sure. Uh, Matt Slick, Reverend Matt Slick, ordained minister. Um, I have a bachelor's of, of, uh, in social science from a Lutheran college, went to a Presbyterian seminary and earned my master's of divinity. And that was back in 1991. I'm old, uh, 63 years old, and have been defending the Christian faith for 40 years. My website, carm.org, um, has had over 100 million visitors. That's C-A-R-M dot O-R-G. I'm on 16 or 19 uh, stations uh, teaching on radio. Uh, just finished my ninth book. Uh, let's see. Oh, been defending Calvinism for about 27-ish years. I don't know. I got to do the math again, but a long time. And um, <clears throat> I have about 80 pages of notes uh, in outline form just defending uh, the Reformed faith. And uh, so there you go. And uh, I'm enjoying to be here. I just hope it'll be good. Now, why do I hold the Calvinism? I hold the Calvinism because I was predestined by God from the foundation of the world to believe in what he has taught. And uh, he works all things after the counsel of his will, Ephesians 1.11. And I firmly am convinced, uh, as, even as the older I get and the more I debate it, uh, that the scriptures do teach that God is omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent, and omnisapient. The last one means uh, full of all wisdom. And that... Uh, uh, <clears throat> Jesus did not, and I don't mean this in a derogatory sense from anyone who doesn't agree with this position, but Jesus did not waste his blood. We believe that the blood of Christ is so powerful that for all whom it was shed, they are cleansed. And Jesus said the Father was gave to him certain people to redeem. That's John 6, 37 through 40, and that he did that. We believe that God called and predestined people from the foundation of the world, Ephesians 1, 4 through 5, as the Bible teaches. And that when Jesus pays for our sins, that means the sins are paid for. And if a bill's been paid for, 
The bill doesn't exist anymore. If he paid for our sins, the sins don't exist anymore. And if anybody wants to say people go to hell for the sins that have already been paid for, then they're accusing God of unrighteousness because they're saying that God will send people to hell for the sins that have already been paid for. If it's been paid for, the debt does not exist anymore. It's been canceled, as what Colossians 2.14 says, a very, very critically important verse. Romans 9, 9-23, very interesting set of scriptures, a pericope of scriptures, talking about the sovereignty of God. And yes, he does make vessels uh, from the same lump, one for honorable use, one for dishonorable use. In fact, uh, the Old Testament even teaches that, Proverbs 16, 4, God makes all things, even the wicked, for the day of destruction. God does this, and uh, I believe that those who don't affirm Calvinism are not malicious, uh, they're not um, anti-God. I believe, and I mean this in a respectful way, they don't have a sufficient understanding of the work of God and his sovereignty. I do not mean a disrespect by that, but that's, that's just what I say, and they may say the same thing. Um, but that's why I hold to it, and um, may God receive all the glory. Amen. <laughs> Amen. <clears throat> awesome. Awesome. So, so as we will jump right into it, you know, and go into the scriptures. So, here are the rules for the listeners. I know Matt and Mike, you both know, but <clears throat> we will have a few select scriptures, and we are going to park there okay so i know usually when there are discussions or debates i'm very intentional on calling it a, a discussion and conversation you know but usually you know we don't always get a time uh, an opportunity to park at certain scriptures that we might disagree on and just exegete that so that is what we're going to be doing so we're going to have a few select scriptures and there's going to be a total of 15 minutes on each scripture for these two men to discuss that and the conversation is going to happen organically so when i name the scripture and i read it uh each each of these gentlemen will have a two-minute opening uh, to respond to it and after that it'll be just a organic conversation sometimes it might be you know responding sometimes it might be uh, them asking each other a question they'll have 15 minutes to have a conversation about that but it will be exactly 15 minutes although uh, i am very confident that at the end of each one i'm going to want them to go another 15 minutes but you know we're going to do the best we can with the few scriptures that we can ultimately discuss there are a few rules that i do not uh, have any concerns with these gentlemen but this is what we do on this show no name calling you know no one's going to call each other a heretic or they're not going to um, send them to uh, send them to hell or anything like that no loud speaking we're not going to get all out of our character and most importantly well, let me not say most importantly but no bringing up of multiple scriptures from elsewhere when, when exegeting a particular text that doesn't mean that you can't do it at all because Sometimes that is necessary in bringing a point for a few different reasons. So if it is necessary, yes, please do that. If we're talking about Romans 9 and if it's relevant to bring up the Gospel of John, yes, please do that. But we do not want to jump all around the Bible and fail to appropriately teach on the scripture that is given. So with that said, <clears throat> The first scripture is going to be Romans chapter 5, verse 18, and I'm going to give it to Michael Holloway first. My, uh, Elder Mike, you will have the first two minutes. Uh, 
if you take that long, then Matt Slick will have two minutes. And then after that, y'all can just converse in a total of 15 minutes to discuss Romans chapter five, verse 18. And the NASB reads, so then as through one transgression, there resulted condemnation to all men. Even so, through one act of righteousness, there resulted justification of life to all men. All right. So, Michael Holloway, the floor is yours. Two minutes. All right. I think that the text is pretty explicit, and I don't think that there's a lot of uh, uh, misunderstanding here if we simply read the text for what it says. Uh, it's, it clearly indicates that I believe there's no disagreement on is that sin came into the world by one man, and that man being Adam. So Adam being the one who brought sin into the world through his offense, right? Uh, judgment came to all men. I don't think that there's e any of us on this panel on tonight that would argue that through Adam's sin, death came upon all men. Not some men, not few men, not an elect group of men, but death came upon all men resulting resulting or the consequences of that sin or offense of adam brought about condemnation even so so notice the writer he's even so is, is in the language he's really saying even so through one man's act the free gift came to all men resulting in justification of life and so uh what we see here is the universal effect of sin as well as the universal effect of the work of Christ. Now, when we say universal, nobody get scared because we're not universalist, right? But, but the effect of Christ's sacrifice on the cross as clearly illustrated here by the apostle Paul impacted all humanity. That anthropos is the word for man here and is dealing with mankind. And so, Paul does not change the context of man from one uh, offense to the free gift offered by Jesus Christ. It is the same context. It's the same word. I think it's an, uh, uh, it goes against what the text is saying to try to explain away the universality of the second all when you agree that the first all brought sin to all. Thank you. All right. And Matt, two minutes. All right. So unfortunately, no disrespect meant, Mike, but you shouldn't use the King James Bible when you're doing apologetics. You need to set, find something that's more dedicated to the original text and original language, because the, it does not say the free gift came in the Greek. Uh, it does, you know, Doron gratis would be the Greek. It's not there in the Greek. What we have is the NASB standard, uh, which says uh, through one transgression, there resulted condemnation to all men. We know that is correct. Even so, through one act of righteousness, there resulted justification of life to all men. Universalism is a heresy. I can give you the verses for that. But here's the thing. Who's the second group? The all men. The all men that are justified, because justification means you're declared righteous, you're saved. And it says there resulted justification of life to all men. Now, this is a difficult verse, and I could spend 20 minutes on it. 
because I've studied it in Greek for many, many uh, years. And the ESV gets it wrong, the King James gets it wrong, the NIV gets it wrong because of what it says. Because of the second part, it resulted justification of life to all men. They make the mistake of not learning that the way God uses the word all is different than the way we use the word all. If you go to John 6, 37, Jesus says, all that the Father has given me will come to me. And we go to 1 Corinthians 15, 22, it says, in Adam all die, in Christ all shall be made alive. That second all can only be the, the Christians, the elect. And you know, I'm not supposed to quote a whole bunch of verses, but those are the verses that show that what, G, what Paul is talking about is two groups of people, everybody represented by Adam and then the all represented by Jesus. Trust me, I can talk about this for a long time. And that's why that verse is so significant because what it does, it shows that there's a group of people, I call them the all, that are given by the Father to the Son for redemptive work. That's why it says the result of justification of life to all men. It's that consistent exegesis of the totality of the that thematic, thematic word of the word all, pos, in the scriptures. All right, Mike, and feel free to respond, Mike, and you guys have just converse. Feel free to respond. No, I, I'm, I, I'm in total agreement with you about the NASB. It's actually my preferred version when I do uh, apologetics. <laughs> so uh, don't get me wrong. I like King James, but uh, but NASB is, is a better translation. So I certainly agree. However, uh, going back to the verse, there are no verbs in Greek in the in the in the verse. There are no verbs. And so there the second group of all. There's no mandate that all of them become justified. It, the context is clearly came to all men in the same way that the first group of all, death came upon all men. So it comes to all men. Now, it doesn't negate the fact that mankind yet has to receive the salvation offered by God. Paul isn't addressing that in the verse, but he's simply making it clear that one effect had a universal impact the same effect. See, I think it actually reduces the power of the work of Christ to say that Adam's work resulted in a universal effect while Christ was selective. I think, no, I think it is clear that the universality of the text is clear. And, and I think most, uh, well, I won't say it that way, but there are many scholars, there are many scholars who certainly would side with what I'm saying throughout church history, that this all men in the second group is clear. It's the universality of mankind that the work of Christ impacted. And I, and I think we have to impose, we have to bring to the text a thought process that's not in the text to say, well, it must only be some men, because that's not what Paul said. All right, you're ready. Um, there's a doctrine that a lot of people do not know about called federal headship. Federal headship is the teaching that the male represents a descendant. So Adam and Eve were in the garden. She sinned first, then he sinned. But Romans 5.12 says, says that sin entered the world through Adam. The phrase in Adam is a phrase of federal headship of those whom he represented. And in Christ is also a term of federal headship of those whom he represented. If you were to go to Romans 6, 6 and Romans 6, 8, it says that we were crucified with Christ. We died with Christ. The only way that can be possible is if Christ was our federal head. Because the unbelievers have not died with Christ. Those who go to hell are not judged. They're not crucified with Christ. They're not crucified of the world. 
This is proof that the idea of federal headship, of representation is there. That's what Romans 5.18 is talking about. So as, as through one transgression, that's Adam's sin, there resulted condemnation to all men because he was a federal head of all people whom he represented. Even so, through one act of righteousness, Jesus' sacrifice, there resulted justification of life to all men. That's to the all whom he represented. Remember, John 6, 37 through 40, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and I will certainly not cast them out. You can't lose them. Now, you're right that the, the verse does not have any uh, verbs in it, but we have two sentences joined by conjunction. And so what, what conjunction A leads to conjunction B. So we know, because it says, as through one act, so also, conjunction B. So conjunction A, Adam's sin resulted in condemnation to all people. That's the right verb to put in there. You take the verb, you drop it down because it's parallel. Therefore, the work of Christ resulted in justification of life to all men. Justification only means believers. It can only mean the limited group. <clears throat> Well, um, I, I would agree with a portion of what you say, and I certainly agree with federal headship. I think in Adam, all fail. So Adam certainly represents the federal headship of all humanity. All men fell in Adam. Certainly, this is how death passed upon all men. Now, remember, though, the, what the text says. Let's mean, let me read it here in, in ASB. <laughs> so through one act of righteousness. So the one act of righteousness was the act of Christ. That's clear in the text. There resulted justification of life to all men. Again, there resulted justification of life to all men. So these are two different things. The act of righteousness is Christ, but the results brought justification of life to all men. Paul says here in this very same book that justification comes one way, and that is through faith. And so those and, and I would agree with you that Adam is our federal head, but I do not agree that we were born in Christ. None of us, we were, as a matter of fact, we were aliens from Christ. We were separated from the commonwealth of Israel, those of us who uh, claim Gentileship anyway. And then the scripture says that we were by nature children of wrath. You can't be in Christ and a child of wrath. As a matter of fact, Christ came into the world to save sinners. He didn't come into the world to save those he had already saved. He came to save sinners. So there was no sinner in Christ. You were not always in Christ. We were not always in Christ. And so in Christ, yes, that's how justification takes place. So I don't, I wouldn't say that the whole world is justified, but that one act of righteousness results, right? So those that are now in Christ receive the justification. How are we in Christ? Well, according to scripture, we believe. After we have heard the word of truth, we believe, and then we are sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. But prior to faith, none of us were in Christ. We were children of wrath. Finish my notes. We're in Christ. Um, <clears throat> spoke of Adam's headship. That's good. Um, but the, the text says one act of righteousness resulted in justification of life to all men. Justification is a legal declaration of righteousness that occurs by faith. Romans 3.28, Romans 5.1, Romans 4.5. Um, it only occurs by faith, but... The question then would be, who are the all who are justified? Because that's a serious question. If you're going to say who are the all who are justified, it's either everybody who ever lived or it's not the case that it's everybody who ever lived. Well, we know that it can't be the case that everybody who ever lived is justified before God. That's just falsified. 
people go to hell. Mark 3, 29, Matthew 25, 46. So it has to be that it's not everybody. That's limited. That's by, by the necessity of the text itself. And um, <clears throat> you said you're not, we're not uh, all born in Christ. Uh, yes, we, in Christ is a phrase of federal headship. And um, with respect, uh, I don't think you understand the issue of what Calvinism teaches in this issue. Because we don't teach that people are born saved. That's never the Calvinist position. What we teach is that the elect given by God the Father to the Son for the redemptive work, that Jesus only bore the sins of those elect people. And this was done at the cross. And then later when people believe, that's when they're justified. The cross removed and paid for their sin. And then when they believe, that's when they're justified. These are different things. And Jesus is our federal head and all who are in Christ. Because it says in Romans 6, 6, Romans 6, 8, it says that in Romans 6, 6, we died uh, with Christ. Romans 6, 8, we were crucified with Christ. It's not the unbelievers who died with Christ or crucified with Christ. It can only be the believers, only be the elect, who the Father gave to the Son to redeem. That's the only way those verses can make sense, that in Christ we were crucified. In Christ we died. It can only mean that way. It doesn't make sense any other way. Well, I, I think it's, there's a... Uh... I probably could pull 10 different commentaries that give 10 different reasons, <laughs> but, and, and they all can make sense. That'll make them accurate, but they can all make sense. Uh, from a Calvinistic construct, there's only one way it can make sense because what happens, and I mean this with all respect as well, that Calvinists, uh, they read St. John chapter number six uh, as though that's the standard verse in all of the verses you're reading through John. When John was speaking to, uh, well, well, actually the, the culture and context of John was Christ coming to a people who were in covenant with him, his own who received him not. Not Gentiles that were specifically focused here. Paul is focused on here in Romans. That's why you don't hear Paul saying, you don't hear Paul saying, you know, those that the Father gives, right? That's not Paul's context in John's called context is different. So, uh, to keep referring back to John doesn't help, I don't believe, helps what Paul is saying. Context indicates that Paul was comparing the fate of those who are in Adam, the position of all by virtue of their birth into the human race, and the blessings of those who are in Christ, the position of all who have responded in faith. So justification comes to those who respond in faith, but the one free act, remember, that's why I brought up there's no verb in the, in, so that resulted is not a verb, right? And that's, so that's a translator. That's a translator just trying to make a connection, but that's not a verb that, that would indicate that what Christ did automatically made all men righteous. That, that's, that's why understanding the general verbs in that, in that text is important. And this is why the, the RSV actually translated as leads to the acquittal in life, right? The world, the world became guilty before God through Adam, but through Christ's righteous act, it leads to the acquittal. And the acquittal only comes through repentance because there's no sins forgiven without repentance if we're going to be biblical. And so, again, no verbs in the text. It's not that Paul was saying these people automatically are righteous because of what Christ did. No, it leads to the acquittal for those who have faith in him. That's how justification comes.
So, oh, so Matt, I know you want to respond to that, but we're going to go to, we're right at 15 minutes. We're going to go to one of your favorite verses next and you get the first shot at that. So although uh, you didn't get a chance to get the last word there, we will jump to Colossians chapter two, <clears throat> verse 14. Uh, Matt Slick, you'll uh, be able to go first and get the last word on this one. Uh, verse 14 reads as, having canceled out the certificate of debt consistent, consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Reverend Matt Slick, go for it. Colossians 2.14 is, in my opinion, the singularly most powerful verse in support of uh, the five points of Calvinism. At least three of them are right there. Uh, it says in the previous verse uh, that uh, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees. The certificate of debt is the Greek word keragraphon. It only occurs right there. And what does it mean? It's a handwritten IOU of legal indebtedness. Canceling the certificate uh, forgiving us all our transgressions, canceling the certificate of debt, having nailed it to the cross. The sin debt is canceled at the cross. That's when it's canceled. Now, if someone wants to go with it's the law, trust me, that doesn't work for them at all. But this is what he's talking about. Having forgiven us all our transgressions, that's sin, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which is hostile to us, he took it out of the way, having nailed to the cross. When is it removed? When you believe? Nope. When you get baptized? Nope. It is removed and canceled at the cross. Jesus Christ canceled it at the cross. Now, what does it mean to cancel the sin debt? If the sin debt is canceled at the cross, you can't go to hell. The sin debt, if it's gone, God cannot judge you for sin, because if he does judge you for sin, the sin debt's canceled. He can't judge you for sin if the sin debt's canceled. That would mean God be unrighteous. Since the sin debt is borne by Christ and canceled at the cross, it cannot be universal atonement. Because if it's universal atonement, then everybody has to go to heaven. But people, uh, people go to hell. So it cannot be universal atonement. It has to be limited atonement, or we say definite atonement. Jesus bore the sin and canceled the sin debt of the elect. To say that anybody would say that if Jesus canceled the sin debt on the cross, but you've got to receive it. You've got to believe it. That's not what it says. It's canceled at the cross 2,000 years ago, just as we died with Christ 2,000 years ago. Crucified with Christ 2,000 years ago. He canceled the certificate of debt 2,000 years ago. It can't be universal. <clears throat> okay. Um, well, I have a different take on that verse. Um, I certainly understand where Matt's coming from. If we go to um, Colossians here, it doesn't start here in verse 14. So it's going to actually show us, um, Matt said it's not talking about the law. Um, and then he also said that um, it doesn't say you have to believe. Well, well I'm, I just want to read the, the, just a couple verses up into it. If we start at verse 11, it says, In him you were also circumcised with circumcision made without hands, in the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Watch verse 12. Having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised up with him, watch this, through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. So we can't get to verse 14 before we get through verse 12. If there's no through faith, there's no 
no application of the cancellation of the debt applied to me. So informationally, I agree with, with what Matt is saying, but applicationally, I do not. Application is important here. And so the verse applies. God, yes, canceled the debt in Christ at the cross. But how does that apply to the individual? Well, through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. Verse 13, when you were dead in your transgressions and in the circumcision of your flesh. So he makes it individual uh, 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 or, or he makes it specific about the people now in that, that when you were dead, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all transgressions. God hasn't forgiven us before we repented or had faith, which he already established in verse 12. Then verse number 14, after having faith, after being buried with him, then verse number 14 says, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of the dogma against us or decrees against us, which was hostile hasn't taken it out of way, nailing it to the cross. Now watch this. Goes on to say he disarmed the rulers and authorities, made a public display of, of them, triumphing them over them in it. But verse 16 really nails it in. Therefore, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or to respect the festival or new moon or Sabbath day. What are these? These were the, the commandments of the law which were a mere shadow of what was to come. But the substance belongs to Christ. So yes, this was the, the law that was against us that all mankind became guilty of when we sinned against him. And therefore, uh, now through faith, all of the rest of these things take place, right? So no faith, no carry on, thank you. So I didn't say you don't have to believe. Uh, that's that's important. We do have to believe, and we're justified mm -hmm. by belief. Yes. And focusing on the other, other part, and the earlier part is always good. You want to do that. But uh, <clears throat> the Bible says, yes, we're raised up through faith. This is the issue of uh, the symbolic resurrection that we have in our uh, faith in Christ, because we are by faith dying to the world. But the issue of federal headship is critical in this. Federal headship means the male represents a descendants. Who did Jesus represent on the cross? Did he represent everybody who ever lived? The answer has to be no. Because it says, in Adam all die, in Christ all should be made alive. First Corinthians 15, 22. The all can only be the elect who are made alive in the resurrected body, glorified, uh, justified. Now, it says there in Colossians 2.14 that it was canceled at the cross. The sin debt's canceled at the cross. If it's canceled at the cross, then it's canceled at the cross. It's either the case that it was canceled at the cross or it's not the case that it was canceled at the cross. It was canceled at the cross. The question then has to be answered. Can you be held responsible for a debt that doesn't exist, a sin debt that does not exist anymore? It's canceled. It's gone. It's removed. Can you go to hell for, sin debt, for sins that aren't there? That's the question that has to be answered, because if you can't answer it, well, you know, it's an important thing. Now, it was canceled for the elect who were in Christ, who died with Christ, and who were crucified with Christ when he was crucified, when he did this. And then we are, when we are granted faith, Philippians 129, God grants that we believe, that's when we're justified, as the Bible says, having therefore been justified by faith, Romans 5.1. Justification is when the righteousness of God is imputed to us, that's Philippians 3, 9, that the righteousness of God is given to us by faith. The people were represented by Christ, his people on the cross. He canceled the sin debt for them. God infallibly brings them to a place of faith by granting it to them. 
and they are justified at that point. And they will not be lost because of God's work. God knows exactly what he's doing. He gave to the son, the elect from the foundation of the world. And we have security in him because of what he has done on that cross. <clears throat> oh, not hearing them. Yeah, Mike, we don't hear you. You on mute, bro. No, that's okay. Keep talking without saying anything. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> uh, uh, the problem is that the verse doesn't say he died for the elect, right? That, that's a conclusion Calvin has come to. Matter of fact, you're not going to find a verse that says, well, he only died for the, the elect. He only died for the elect. He only died for any particular. It's a conclusion based on the theological construct, which is Calvinism. I understand how you gather what you come to, but the verse doesn't say it. Here's what the verse says, through faith, right? And then the verse doesn't give any restrictions as to who can and who cannot have faith, right? It was granted that we believe. You quoted the verse in Philippians. In that same verse, it was granted that we believe and suffer, right? And as a matter of fact, uh, that granting is universal as well, right? Because if we understand books of Philippians and Galatians and Ephesians we un and Colossians, we understand that these letters are the backdrop or what happens from what Paul did in the book of Acts. So Paul is communicating to primarily Gentiles that yes, it has been granted unto you to believe. Why? Because in their original culture, their thought process was that salvation was to the Jew only. So when we see terms like this, it's, we bring them into our Western culture and we miss the context. The context was that Paul said to the Jews that now I turn to the Gentiles whom God has also granted repentance unto life. He's not talking about that he granted Mike repentance and not Joe, Jill repentance and not Janet. No, he's granted repentance to the Gentiles, Acts chapter number 11. In Acts chapter number five, he already said it's unto you have been granted eternal repentance to eternal life. So the Jews have been granted life. The Gentiles have been granted life. There's nothing in the verse that, that narrows the scope of the granting of to, to believe. And so again, getting back to Colossians, those who have faith, if you are in Christ through faith, I think scripture is absolutely clear there. You are only in Christ through faith in Jesus Christ. Then Christ represents you. We weren't born in Christ. And I know you weren't saying that uh, no one is born saved. I, I really, I know, and I know Calvinists don't teach that. However, it appears that you believe that in your explanation as though you've always been in Christ. None of us were in Christ until we believed in Jesus Christ. Sorry, but that's just simply not true. We were in Christ from the foundation of the world. If you go to Ephesians 1, 4, and 5, it says this. This is where you'll find this. It says, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, in him, in Christ, before the foundation of the world. This is the proof that the Father gave to the Son the elect, and Jesus came to redeem them. To say that we're only uh, in Christ through faith is to put the cart before the horse, because we were crucified with Christ we were, uh, we died with Christ, and he did this. He was crucified and he died 2,000 years ago. The only way that could be the case is if the elect were the ones who were represented by Christ, as Romans 5.18 says, as other verses clearly say. So the question still is, in Colossians 2.14, the sin debt is what he's talking about. It's canceled when Jesus died on the cross. He either canceled it for everybody, or it's not the case that he canceled it for everybody. 
The question is, if he canceled it for everybody, how can anybody go to hell? Because the sin debt is gone. You cannot be judged and held responsible for a debt that does not exist. Jesus either canceled it at the cross or he did not cancel at the cross. He canceled it at the cross. He either canceled it for everybody or he did not cancel it for everybody. If he canceled it for everybody, then we're required to have universalism. Otherwise, God would be unrighteous for judging people to damnation for no sin, for nothing wrong. We can't have that. This is why it makes sense to say that Christ only bore the sin of the elect. See, you limit the power, I limit the scope. You both believe in a limit on the nature and the extent of that, that uh, atoning work. We believe that the power of the blood of Christ is so strong, so precise that for whom it is shed, it's taken care of. So we don't limit the, we, uh, we limit the, the scope because the power is so great. The others limit the power. They say, well, it was shed for all, but not everybody's saved. And so then they have universal. So you see, there's a difference in how it's limited. And we, oh, I could go into this more and more, but at any rate, there we go. <clears throat> well, um, I would disagree with your interpretation of Ephesians chapter number one, but I think God would be more unjust from the Calvinistic construct because the election took place before sin. <laughs> so God had already determined it wasn't about sin. I chose Matt, Mike, and Veda just because my own sovereign purpose and Jack, Jill and brother Hill, I did not choose them because it wasn't because of sin, right? Because he didn't look in the future. It was because simply because of his sovereign choice. And so, uh, from the Calvinist construct, we have a God judging people for rejecting a Christ who was not in their, who, who, who was not, uh, 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 in his view when he died. Why would they be held accountable for rejecting Christ when Christ didn't die for them? That would be, to me, that would be unjust. Uh, but in, in just because you quoted Ephesians chapter number one, studying it contextually, Paul is addressing Israel and Gentiles. And that's where people get confused on the, the epistles. All of these letters come from the backdrop of the book of Acts. Paul addressing Israelites first. And that beginning of Ephesians 1 is, a, is, is the beginning of a Jewish Hebrew prayer. That's why he goes on and says, us who first trusted in Christ, to the Jew first. But then he says, to you also, who? Gentiles. After you believe, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Then in chapter 2, he goes on to say, God broke down a bit of all the partition made of two, one new man. The scope is not Matt, Mike, and Veda as individuals, the scope is corporate as Israel was God's corporate body, the elect in the Old Testament. Matt, you get the last word. All right, I'll just go through this quickly. To say that God knew who would sin to what degree and that he chose them based on that is uh, showing partiality, which is refuted by James chapter 2, verses 2 through 4. God's choice on who is to be saved is not because he would look into the future and learn anything or know anything in any extent and then say this person could be better or not better or worse or whatever. We'll save this person. Not No, 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 that would be heresy. We can't have that because that would be showing favoritism. Ephesians 1 is addressed specifically to, to the people at Ephesus. I've been to Ephesus too, it's awesome to go there. And <clears throat> he says, who blessed us with every blessing, just as he chose us, the word chose in Greek here, we have three Greek words for chose, eklegomai, eklektos, eklege, and the word for church is ekklesia. 
We are the chosen ones from, the found, from before the foundation of the world. He chose us from before the foundation of the world that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to adoption as son through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intention of his will. So the election and predestination are according to the kind intention of God's will. None of us deserve to be saved. Absolutely none. We have total depravity. We are by nature children of wrath, Ephesians 2, 3. We belong damned. And so what God did from the foundation of the world, he didn't learn, he knew. And he gave the elect, the chosen ones to the son for the son to redeem. He can't, Jesus canceled their sin debt at the cross and they are justified when they believe, but the sin death candle at the cross, it makes perfect sense. He represented his people, and he will not lose any, because he says so, and it makes sense. In John 6, 37 through 40, he will lose none. It's the will of the Father, Jesus lose none. And he can't lose them, because if they're redeemed and paid for their sin debts canceled, they can't go to hell. They're secure in Christ. This brings glory to the Lord Jesus Christ. It brings glory to God that he chose us based on what's in him, not based on what's in us. That he is the one who elected and predestined us. He gets all the glory in that sense. Amen. You know, I just want to say really quick that I think it's hilarious how we actually agree on uh, mostly everything, right? It's for maybe this topic, but I love how when both of y'all are talking, I can see y'all like, yeah, he preaching. Then it's like a slight turn and it's like, ah. <laughs> oh, I can preach it, but I'm limited. I can get down. I mean, <laughs> hey, if you got a yeah. B3 Hammond organ in the back, we can let you go. <laughs> you have me come over to your church, you'll, you'll see. I, I uh, get right. involved. We may take I you up. A, a lapel might. Oh, I'm serious. I move. I groove. I walk. I do, I've even moonwalked in the pulpit before. <laughs> I get excited about God's word. I don't see how people can stand behind a pulpit and say, oh, glory be to God. Let's turn to verse seven. Now let's right. read this. Oh, come on. Right. right. Preach it. Right. <laughs> you know, I went to a, I got to say this. I went to, back in seminary, I had a, a, a black friend. We went to, he goes, come to my church. I go, okay. And I had so much fun there. I loved the enthusiasm. I loved the excitement. I loved everything about it. And when the pastor walked out, they stood up and applauded for the pastor. And I said to him, that's wrong. They shouldn't be applauding for the pastor. He's just a man. And he looked at me and he said, they're not. They're applauding the man who's bringing the word of God. And I looked at him. I went, okay. And I started clapping. <laughs> I need that enthusiasm. When I used to preach in prison, I loved it when people get up and get involved with the word of God. I'm holding back. I am holding back right now. Yeah, it's all right. I love, love his it. word and the truth of Amen. his word. Glory be to Jesus. Oh, yes. Amen. Amen. We, Amen. We, are, we, are, we are three excited people about the word of God. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> oh, yeah. So, and, and I appreciate you all, you know, honoring the time and stuff. I just want y'all to know that when y'all do get that signal, y'all don't got to stop mid-sentence. You can go ahead and finish your I thought call. we did. You know, yeah. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> but uh, so, so the next verse is going to be uh, from 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 1. 2 Peter is authored by Peter. Uh, I think all three of us agree with that. And it reads as this, but false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be I'm sorry, just as there will also be false teachers among you who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing the swift destruction upon themselves. Uh, uh, Elder Holloway, do you get the first and last word on this one? 
All right. Um, great verse. Uh, I think it's a controversial verse, <laughs> but I certainly think it's explicit because the Lord bought them. And so some would say that that purchasing was not a, uh, an official purchasing, that Christ did not actually purchase them. I think the verse is clear. Um, it's the same word. That word for bought is agorezo. And it, it's the same word Paul uses in 1 Corinthians 7, where he says, you were bought at a price. It's the same word in Revelation 5 verse 9, where it says, and they sang a new song saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood. Same word. Right. And so Paul certainly uses this word in terms of uh, those that were bought again, again, Christ paid the price for sin. And this actually kind of ties into our, our last uh, scripture, but Christ paid the price for sin. But God requires repentance before application. All of us that, that are, are impacted by sin, we're all still going to die and we're believers right? So what, what is that showing us? That the penalty of sin is still in effect, right? But until when we believe is when God counts us righteous, just like, just as he did with Abraham. So here in the text, it is clear that agaraza, it simply means that they were bought by their master. That despotes is the word for master there. It's the same word in Revelation where he said, and they cried with a loud voice saying, how long, O Lord, holy and true. That same word, Lord, is the same word for Lord or master used in Peter. So the Lord who bought them. That's what's going to make damnation just. Not because I rejected a savior who rejected me first, but I rejected a savior who loved me and gave himself for me, but I turned my back on him. Why would those that are in hell, what are they going to be there for if in fact they're not rejecting a Christ who actually ever died for them? All right. Just so you know, the Greek word agorazo occurs 30 times in the New Testament, or 22, I believe it is. And uh, it has descriptors in every other place. And you're either bought with money or buy a field with money, and it means that. And that's not what's happening there. In 1 Corinthians 6.20, bought with a price. 7.23, bought with a price. Buy, uh, Revelation 3.18, buy from me gold. Uh, 5.9, purchase for God. 14.3, purchase from de the earth. They're descriptors. It does not occur in First Peter, Second uh, Peter 2.1. It just says that the false prophets were bought. Now, let me ask you. Wait, you know the answer right now, but later. So Jesus is paying the sin debt and canceling the sin debt for the false prophets. Because remember, Colossians 2.14 says the sin debt's canceled. So if he bought them, and that's what it means, that his blood was shed and, he's, and he bought them, then he bought the false prophets. Well, wait a minute. They're not believers to begin with. How can they be redeemed? Because if they're, rede they're going to have their sins uh, canceled, well, then how is that possible for them to go back and become, so to speak, unbought? But you see, there's some problems here. What we'll notice, though, is uh, if you were to check it out, First and Second Peter, what First Peter is doing in the book of First Peter, he's talking to the Jews, those who are dispersed in different areas. And this is why he quotes in First and Second Peter, he quotes the Old Testament at least 20 times. I believe it's 22 times. He is referring to the Old Testament. And lo and behold, what we find in the Old Testament, do you thus repay the Lord of foolish and unwise people? This is Deuteronomy 32, 6, Old Testament. Is not he your father who has bought you? He has made you and established you. 
So what we see here, this is what I, I believe that I do. I believe that Peter is referencing the Old Testament repeatedly all over the place in direct quotes as well as allusions, which aren't direct quotes, but references to something. And he is talking about those who bought, uh, were bought, but it doesn't mean that they were redeemed. It doesn't mean that they were saved. And so we know that the context of Deuteronomy 32.6, that the Israelites were the ones who were bought, but they were never saved. This is different, uh, different buying. It's not bought with redemptive blood. It's something different. I totally agree they weren't saved. So I want to make that clear. Christ's death, uh, the Bible doesn't say you are saved uh, because he died alone. We are saved by grace through faith. So again, this is where I think the confusion is coming in because Christ, there's, there was only one payment for sin. So from a Calvinistic construct, and I'll put it in my words, may not necessarily agree with it the way I explain it. It's almost like he says, okay, everybody has these sins and everybody has all these debts. Christ goes in and says, listen, I'm going to pay for 20% of these because I only want 20% of these people say, so how much is it? You know, pop, 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 he puts out enough money and he leaves, he leaves the rest of the debt unpaid for the sinners that he doesn't want to elect. That's not, I do not believe that's what scripture is talking about. No, Christ paid the penalty for sin. There was only one payment and that payment was death. The death of the unspotted, with no blemish, the lamb, spotless lamb of God. His death paid the price for sin, period. Now, how is that death then attributed to us? According to scripture, repent, that your sins may be blotted out. Yes, he canceled the debt on the cross, but yet Peter tells the people, repent that your sins may be blotted out. So the purchase, yes, Christ paid the price. So getting back to this text, that bought is certainly in reference, agarezo, it's certainly in reference to being bought. In other words, the penalty has been paid. Now, individually, you cannot it get the application of that payment until you believe. That is God's prerequisite. We must repent. We must believe. Otherwise, then God is basically condemning us simply because he didn't choose us. Not for sin, not for the, my, my, the heresy, not, not, not for all the sin that I, that I carried out in my previous life. And if I was still carrying it out, nobody's going to hell for sin. You're simply going to hell because God sovereignly didn't choose you. No, the Bible is clear. Men are going to die because of their sin and because of their lack of belief and faith in Christ. Yes, you are going to hell because God didn't choose you. If you go to Romans chapter 9, verses 9 through 23, which is where we need to spend a lot of time, it says right there in 22 and 23 that he made from the same lump one vessel for honorable use, another one for dishonorable use. And he did so. Proverbs 14, 6, he makes all things, even the wicked for the day of destruction. God is one who made them for this. That's what the Bible says. Now, I didn't like it when I first heard it. But nevertheless, the issue here is that we're talking about the nature and the extent of the atonement. First, Second uh, Peter two one is not talking about uh, that they are saved. I think you would agree with that. But what you want to say is that their sin debt was paid, that they were bought with the blood of Christ, and their sin debt was paid. The question, which I've asked several times, so I haven't answered, is how does someone go to hell for a sin debt that doesn't exist anymore? Their sin debt is pay if it's paid for. What does it mean to pay for something? 
if we pay a debt, it doesn't, that doesn't exist anymore. If Jesus died for our sins and paid the penalty of sins and paid the price, then the sin debt doesn't exist anymore. That's what Colossians 2.14 says. It does not exist anymore. How is it then possible for anybody to go to hell whose sin debt has been canceled at the cross? Even the idea of saying you had to believe in order for it to be applied, no, that's justification. That's different. The, the work of Christ and justification is different, active and passive obedience. The passive obedience is where sin that's canceled. Active obedience is where the righteousness is imputed to us by faith. These are separate theological things. We don't have enough time to go into why they're so important and why they're separate. But Jesus canceled the sin debt of a certain group of people, those who believe. It can only be for those who believe because God grants that they believe, Philippians 129. And you cannot go to hell for a sin debt that's canceled. It's removed. If anybody wants to say you can go to hell for sin that doesn't exist, there's no sin on your account, and God's going to judge you to go to hell. That's accusing God of unrighteousness. That's a serious issue. Go ahead. Proverbs 16, 4, uh, it's been quoted a couple times, but I think uh, not correctly. That word uh, made all things uh, for uh, even the wicked for the day of destruction, it, it, that word isn't create. That word isn't the same word used in Genesis for create. And actually, this is why the NET, I think, brings it out very beautifully. Uh, the scholars from Dallas Theological Seminary, they said the Lord works everything for its own ends. Yes, the evil are prepared for destruction through their wickedness. So yes, they're prepared, but the verse does not say God created people for hell. It doesn't say that. Right, it, the Lord works everything for its own ends, even the wicked for the day of disaster. So, so yes, God is preparing the wicked for judgment, He's preparing the righteous for the eternal blessings in life. That's what Proverbs 16 and 4 are saying. As for Romans chapter 9, and we're, I, I believe we're going to get there, that's certainly again not the context. There's no salvific individual context in Romans chapter number 9, but I'll save that for when we, for when we get there. <laughs> I'll save that for when we get there, but let me say this again the confusion is that I think my Calvinist brothers, they attribute the work of Christ in the life of an individual before faith. That's problematic because here is what happens. You have a person being brought to life, a person being forgiven before they trust in the cross of Christ. The cross then, from my view, um, and my the way I interpret what my Calvinist brothers are saying, they are making the cross some secondary byproduct of God's election. We're saved through election, but you know, he'll use the cross and he'll bring you around to come to the election, but you're saved by election. But no scripture says that. No, every born again believer, we have been chosen in Christ. And oftentimes when my Calvinist brothers, they say, see, listen, God chose us before the foundation of the world. No, he didn't. He chose us in Christ. From a contextual standpoint, those of us who are in Christ have been predestined to the adoption of sons. Now, how do we get in Christ is the question that should be asked. We get in Christ through faith, except you believe, Jesus said, we'll perish. Perish in our sins. My turn? Or we did not? <laughs> Where are oh, go we? Ahead, go ahead. Okay. Go ahead, Matt. Proverbs 16.4 is Pawal, uh, to make. Uh, it means to do, to accomplish, to make, commit. Um, that's why you want to go with a literal translation of the Bible as much as possible. We'll get to Romans 9, which is incredibly powerful in this. Um, <clears throat> you know, I, again, Mike, uh, 
with all due respect, brother, love you, but you don't understand Reformed theology uh, that well in some areas. You say some things that's not our position. And uh, a person brought to light, forgiven before they trust in Christ, it's not our position. We don't say that they're forgiven before they trust in Christ. We say that the sin debt is canceled. And then when they believe, they're justified. This is justification and forgiveness are concomitant. You could have an atheist who's an atheist till the age of 50, and then he's saved. You know, he gets saved. That's because God granted him repentance, 2 Timothy 2.25, granted that he believed, Philippians 1.29, and canceled his sin that at the cross, Colossians 2.14. At the appointed time that God works all things after the counsel of his will, Ephesians 1.11, the man was causing born again, 1 Peter 1, 3. I'm holding back from quoting a lot of verses because it's not fair to, you know, you can't respond to all of them. But this is what the scriptures teach. And if I could just be, you know, maybe sometime I'll put it all together for you. But our position is not that we're forgiven before we trust in Christ. That's not our position. There's a theology, I don't know if you've read, heard about it in seminary, called the now and the not yet. You can find this in, uh, good, Romans uh, 8.30, for example. It says we're already glorified, but we're not glorifications, the resurrected body's not happened yet. That's called the now and the not yet. It's worth a discussion. We don't have time to get into it. So this is what we're talking about. We don't say that we're saved by election. We say that we're saved by the blood of Christ. And the blood of Christ is what saves us. And the blood of Christ was necessary to be spent for the elect whom the Father gave to the Son. Because of, Jesus says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. John 6, 37. So that's happened before the foundation of the world, the eternal covenant spoken of in Hebrews 13, 20, another topic. So <clears throat> the father gave to the son certain people, and they said, they will come to me because they were given. That's why they come. They don't come, and then they're given, which is what you're kind of uh, messing up with, no disrespect meant, in the issue of in Christ when they believe. That's not what it says. They're in Christ from the foundation of the world before they're ever existing. And that has to do with the issue, and I can go to other verses, 2 Corinthians uh, 15, 22, or 1 Corinthians 15, 22, in Adam all die, in Christ all should be made. There's, we don't have enough time to get into it. There's a lot there, um, but we're out of time on that segment. <clears throat> all right, all right uh, Holloway, you get the last word. So the Hebrew word in Genesis for God created is bara. The, the Hebrew word is para, as you stated, beautifully in Proverbs. Again, that's not the same word. The creating or preparing right is is different so they're they're two different hebrew words with two different hebrew meanings that word is not create and so no god did not create anyone wicked again this is one of my major issues with calvinism of course no disrespect but i don't think they understand the implications that they place on a holy god who cannot do evil who no darkness is in him at all yet he's the one creating the people to do the evil and in and in, in, in decreeing that they carry those things out that does and they call that a paradox i call it uh, error. I don't think the scripture is teaching that. I think the scripture teaches a holy God who knows the wrong decisions of man, who has determined to save man through faith in Christ Jesus. Again, Ephesians is talking about those in Christ. And so, again, the Lord making everything for its own purpose, its own purpose. And when we get into Romans, we'll bring that out even more because he already told us who would be given over to wrath. 
those who disobey, right? And who will be given over to peace, those who obey. And I'm not talking about fulfilled works or covenants of the law, but those who believe. And so faith, listen, no man is saved without faith. And I know you're not saying they're actually saved, but if the sins are canceled out, they can't be damned. So what is it? Is it purgatory? Is it a middle ground? They're not, they, they can't be damned. The sins are canceled, but they're not saved. Well, if my sins are canceled, that's kind of like, sounds like saved to me. Then, then to me, that, that, that discredits what Paul says when he says we were children of wrath. Well, technically, you were never really a child of wrath. There was never any danger of you going to hell. It was all a formality. You weren't a child of wrath. You weren't in danger. You weren't really a sinner. But according to scripture, we were really children of wrath on our way to hell, except for the work of Christ. Not except for election of individuals, but except for the work of Christ. All right, fellas. All right, fellas. So we're about to... So just so you all know, I know I sent you guys the program, but you both alluded to Romans so much that I saved that one for last. So I so I moved it around. It's still the same order, but I moved, I moved Romans 9 to the last one. So we can spend a little time on that comfortably. Uh, so the next one, uh, Matt Slick, uh, you'll be able to go first. And this is going to be, uh, we're in the New Testament this whole, uh, th this whole time. We're in, we're in 1 John chapter 2, verse 2. This is written by John the disciple. And it reads as this. And he himself... It's the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. Matt Slick, teach us what this is saying. Yeah, it's one of my favorite verses in support of Calvinism. A lot of people don't understand what it really is saying. So first of all, we have to understand something. Jesus was not sent to the whole world. He was not sent to the whole world. Matthew 15, 24, Jesus says, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Covenantally, Jesus was not sent to Egypt, Syria, Arabia. He was only sent to Israel, covenantally. The Jews uh, broke the covenant. Luckily, we Gentiles were then grafted in. Praise God for that. Now, <clears throat> a Jew would always understand, always understand that the Messiah to come was only for Israel. That is, without exception, that's how it was to be. Now, that's one point. So it says the whole world, it doesn't mean every individual, all nation groups, etc. God should love the world, all the groups, not just Israel. That's the covenantal aspect in the mindset of the Jews, how it would be understood. The word to propitiate, halasmas, means literally the turning away of anger by the offering of a gift. That's in Bromley, uh, the International Standard Encyclopedia. Oh, no, that was in Baker Encyclopedia of the Bible. The removal of wrath by the offering of a gift. That's in the International Standard. And I can go into other, there are other quotes that show that the propitiation is a sacrifice that removes wrath. It doesn't make it possible to remove wrath. When someone is propitiated, the wrath of God is removed, it's taken away, it's done, it's dealt with. If he propitiated the sins of every individual who ever lived, as some people think mistakenly, that 1 John 2, 2 means, then what they're saying is the wrath of God is removed from everybody everywhere all the time. Then we're back to the same question, which still hasn't been answered. How can someone go to hell for a sin debt that doesn't exist anymore? If he canceled the sin debt for everybody who ever lived, if he propitiated, removed the wrath of God from everyone who ever lived, then how can they go to hell? They can't. Jesus knew exactly whom he was coming for. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And those who come to me, I will certainly not cast out. That's what he says. He's talking about the security of those given by the Father to the Son, John 6, 7 through 40. And we know that he propitiated the wrath of God. John 19, 30, it is finished. To tell us die, legal payment made on that cross. The legal requirement was done. 
we're propitiated. We can't go to hell if we're propitiated because it means to remove the wrath of God. That's who it was done for, the elect. So I would say then when Jesus said, or when Peter said, repent that your sins may be blotted out, he misspoke because uh, repentance doesn't lead to, that's in Acts 3, I believe it is. I'll get that for you. But, 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 but if repentance doesn't lead to repentance, I'm sorry, forgiveness of sins, then they all misspoke, right? Repentance leads to forgiveness of sin. John says, if we, com if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What if we confess our sins? He is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us if we confess our sins, right? When Jonah went to Nineveh, he preached the judgment of God. What happened? They repented in sackcloth and ashes. They fasted. When God saw their repentance, he turned from the wrath that he had intended to bring upon them. What did it? Repentance. Paul, throughout all the, the scriptures, uh, if we are willing and obedient, the book of Isaiah, we shall eat the fruit of the land. Come now, let us reason together. Isaiah 1, though your sins be as scarlet, I'll make them white as snow, right? If, if, you are willing and obedient. So, so the, the, from scripture, from Genesis to Revelation tells us clearly that we are forgiven upon repentance. That's when sins are washed, wiped away applicable. Again, there's only one payment for sin. I tried to explain this before. This is the answer to the question that I don't think that you think I'm answering. There's only one payment for sin. And Christ was it. <laughs> there's no bunch of debts, right? There's one debt. And it was upon all of humanity right? This is why we preach Christ. So when men come into Christ, there's then the sin debt, which is canceled, is now applied to their lives. Then they're justified by faith. But there's not like, well, he paid my debt, not yours. When Adam sinned, we all went into sin. Why? Through that one act of, that one act of transgression, that one offense, right? So through the work of Christ, it was paid. But my, my Calvinist brothers think that, hey, he only paid enough for us. Sorry. And when the rest of the non-elect get up there, you know, hey, he didn't pay for ours. No, he only, he only gave me enough for them. No, there's only one payment. Right? And when Christ paid the debt, when he died on Calvary's cross, that was it. Now, how do you and I become a part of that? We have faith in Jesus the Christ. Right? And so that word propitiation, I'm sorry, real I'm so go ahead, go ahead. I'm on time. Go, go, go ahead, real quick, My go last ahead, sentence go ahead. here. So that word propitiation here, not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. So it's it's not just selective to the believer. He he paid it for the sins of the whole world. That's why we preach the gospel to every creature. I'll stop there. Well, you didn't define who the whole world is, every individual or all the nations. And I gave the con context that it shows that it has to do with all the nations. God not just loves Israel, but uh, he can save others, which is prophesied in um, Genesis 12, 3, and you, all the nations, shall be blessed, and called the gospel by Paul in Galatians 3, 8, when he quoted that. Uh, Acts 3, 19 deals with the Jews. You go to verse 13, and it says that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, this is a Jewish thing, Paul and the repentance are already yes. in a covenant relationship with God. So the issue of repentance is always commanded. And you gotta be, we got to talk about something very significant, probably off the air, about the issue of repentance, because it's a, an important issue there. But nevertheless, 1 John 2, 2, the word propitiate means to cancel the, the sin. It means to cancel the wrath, to appease the wrath, to remove the wrath. If it's, not, if it's understood that the wrath that is canceled is the wrath of God upon every individual who ever lived, then again, 
how is it possible that anybody could go to hell for a wrath of God, the judgment of God that is, doesn't exist anymore? It's canceled. This is a question that you, I mean, you know, I love you, brother. Okay. I want your hat. I'm covering your hat. Okay. <laughs> you get along great, but you're not answering the question. You think you're answering the question, but you're not. If Jesus canceled the sin debt for everyone, how can anyone go to hell if the sin debt doesn't exist? Likewise, 1 John 2, 2, if he propitiated, removed the wrath of God from everybody by his blood sacrifice, then how can anybody go to hell since the, the blood, uh, the propitiation has occurred? The wrath of God is removed. If people say you've got to believe, well, Belief is a command of God, Exodus 20, 1 through 17, 10 commandments. Believe in the Lord God. Jesus even said, believe in him, believe also in me. It's part of the Old Testament law to believe in the true and living God. And so even belief is an act or a, a command of God to believe. So it's part of the law. So all the law, all the sin, if you don't believe in God, that's sinful. It's canceled at the cross. And if it's canceled, how can anybody go to hell for a sin debt that doesn't exist? How can anybody go to hell if the wrath of God has been propitiated, removed? Doesn't say potentially removed. Doesn't say removed if you believe. Doesn't say removed if you do this or repent or get baptized. It says it's propitiation for the sins of the whole world. To propitiate means to remove the wrath. That means that it's done. Logically, it can't be for everybody who ever lived. Logically, you can't have Jesus paying the sin debt and canceling it for everybody ever lived. Otherwise, we have injustice with God. We can't have that. Well, um, faith is not a work. Belief is not a work. And I'm not sure if you were saying that, but you, you attributed belief to the law as though that's an act that would make one, uh, you know, that would discredit it. So it can't be because you believe. No, the scripture is absolutely clear that Abraham was justified by faith, not of works right? Not of the works of the law. So faith is certainly not a work, and at least certainly not meritorious for salvation. Faith is a requirement for every single believer, and that's because that's what the scripture says. Now, again, I think that you would agree that we have to have faith, in my, but I don't understand why, because you have nothing to have faith. Well, you can have faith in Christ, but you don't have nothing to repent about because the, trans, the transgression is already forgiven. It's almost like you wake, you, you wake up and you realize that I have no sin, and you repent for the sins that were already washed away before you realized it. No, no, we were sinners. And when we repent those sins, then just as God was talking, you're right, the scope of Acts 3 was talking to Israel, right? And But and Peter certainly commanded them, repent that your sins may be cleansed. And that's the scriptures. And so getting right back to 1 John chapter number two, the, there's nothing in that text, nor the whole book that, that speak of uh, nations, not, not in this, no, not for ours only. That scope was the believers, those that have accepted Christ, those that were have already confessed him. Then, uh, not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. Now, you say that applies to all nations. But, but what you really mean is it applies to some people in all the nations. But so you can't have it. I don't think you can have it both ways. I think the text is absolutely clear. If you're talking about all nations, that still include everybody to me, because if I'm in Russia and it's all nations, then I'm covered. If I'm in Iraq and that's a nation, I'm covered. So it still doesn't say some individuals and some not. 
No, there's nothing in scripture that says that. It's a theological deduction that Calvinists come to, but it's not explicitly stated in scripture. This is why it's always, uh, you know, and, and again, no disrespect, uh, I speak this against the doctrine, not, not my brother Matt Slick, but it's always, so it has to be this. It's never that the scripture says this, but it has to be. It's like a theological conclusion. And I'm glad you said that. You said logically it has to be. And I agree with you, logically from a Calvinistic construct, it does have to be, but biblically it doesn't have to be because there's no text that says it. Go ahead, Matt. I'm glad you agree that the logic requires a certain answer. Logic exists because the transcendental nature, the laws of logic that exist as a reflection of the mind of God. We think the thoughts of God. And if something is not true, uh, if something is logically impossible, it cannot be true. And this guy get into this and transcendental argument for God's existence. So if something's logically necessary, then it's also true. If it's not logically necessary, then it can't be true. Logic requires that if Jesus canceled the sin debt at the cross, Colossians 2.14, then you cannot go to hell for a sin debt that doesn't exist anymore. Now, people, you can say, no disrespect, man, you can say, well, but the scripture disagrees with the, with the logic. If it's logical, the scriptures can't disagree with it. Not because logic supersedes scripture, but because logic, ultimately, we're thinking the thoughts of God after it. And this says scripture's revelation. And God does say, come, let us reason together. And we're to do that. We're to think rationally. We're, we're to think logically. And if something's not logical, it can't be true. We reject it. So we can't have it be, for example, that Jesus is both God in flesh and not the case that he's God in flesh at the same time in the same sense. Both those statements can't be both true. So logic is a requirement uh, for our deduction and our example, because that's what you're doing. If this, then that. You're using logic all the time. Faith is not a work. Yes, it is. It's the work of God. And God's, uh, Jesus says so. John 6, 28, 29. He specifically said that. And yes, Jesus, excuse me, we're justified by faith. But you see, the thing is, that uh, <clears throat> you say the whole world has to mean every individual, and I've already gone over this. If he propitiated the sin for every, every, everybody that ever lived, that means he removed the wrath of everybody who ever lived. It cannot be that. This is simple. If he could not propitiate it, if you say he only propitiated for those who believe, well, I would agree. He only propitiates for those who believe. That is also true. But he canceled the sin debt before they believed. And he canceled the sin debt propitiated before people were born like you and me, us three here. He propitiated, if it means the wrath, before we ever lived. This is the now and the not yet. He could only have done that if we died with him. We were crucified with him, which is what the Bible clearly says. That's only possible in federal headship. This all works out very nicely when we understand God doesn't make any mistakes, doesn't waste his blood. He's given the elect to the son. The son redeems the elect. He propitiates the elect. He cancels a sin debt for the elect. He grants the elect faith. He grants the elect repentance. And it's not based on anything he foresaw that they would do because that would be heresy. That would be a false teaching, not because they would repent, not because they would believe, but because of God's choice and what was in him before the foundation of the world in love. He predestined us and he does predestine bad things to happen. I got a verse to prove that. God does that. Well, uh, just getting back to the logic question, I'm glad we're here. I'm, I'm so glad because I just covered this in class <laughs> on the other night in school, right? Logic is a test for falsities, not necessarily a test for truth. So something, something can have a logical ending 
or a logical assumption at the end where you can logically determine what you think an outcome should be, but that does not mean that that logical conclusion is a truth. And therefore, Calvinistic construct is what drives your logical conclusion. What I am saying is not that I'm speaking against logic. I think the Bible gives us a very logical conclusion. If you repent, your sins are forgiven. That's logical. That's logical and biblical at the same time. I don't have to conclude something that I can't find a verse for. I can logically say that Christ said, if what must I do to be saved? Believe on the Lord and you shall be saved. Guess what? That's logical. And the conclusion is in the text. And I don't have to, I don't need a calculator. All I need is the text. So again, and, and to go back to the, the verse, again, the scope of that, you, you, you believe that because Christ died, we were buried with him when he died, or, or we were crucified with him, and then buried with him. But the text says buried with him through baptism. <laughs> so both in Colossians and in Romans 6, Colossians 2 and Romans 6, buried with him by baptism. So baptism does identify us with his death, burial, and resurrection. But you nor I were hanging up there with him on the cross. Neither were we with him when he was buried. We identified that with that act through our faith when we outwardly expressed it through water baptism. Water baptism doesn't say, don't get me wrong, but that's the outward act that expresses the inward uh, response of the heart. We believe, we identify ourselves with this death, burial, and resurrection through the outward sign of water baptism, and we rise to walk in newness of life. But neither of us were on that cross. We were still sinners. We were still children of wrath. Matt, you get the last word, 90 seconds. Uh, you still fail to, to understand, no disrespect, men, but but we're crucified with Christ. And yes, Colossians 2, 11 and 12, and, and Romans 6, uh, 4 through 6, talks about dying with him, being buried with him, and that's an interesting discussion. But it says we're crucified with Christ. When are we crucified with Christ? We're crucified with Christ when Christ is crucified. Because it says we're crucified with him. He was crucified 2,000 years ago. We were crucified with him. That necessitates the elect. It cannot be that everybody was crucified with them. And it cannot be that you become crucified with Christ when you get baptized or when you believe. Because when we get baptized, when we believe, we didn't exist at that time back then. But it says we were crucified with him. When was he crucified? 2,000 years ago. We died with him. When did he die? 2,000 years ago. It only makes sense if we understand this to say that we were in Christ, represented by him, and when he died on the cross, we died with him. That's what federal headship requires. That's what Romans 6, 6, Romans 6, 8, Colossians 2, 14, 1 John 2, 2 requires, that the federal headship representation of our Lord Jesus Christ represented us on the cross, and we died with him. Romans 7, 4 says he has died to sin, or uh, died to the law, the law doesn't exist anymore when you've died with them. You're freed from the law. Well, when does this happen? Not when you get baptized. Certainly not when you get baptized. And though repentance is important, repentance isn't what saves us. It's faith in Christ. Repentance is compliance with the law. We've got to be careful. But the issue here is that, yes, baptism identifies us with a death, burial, and resurrection. That's, that's true. But we're crucified with Christ. That's not baptism. That's an event that happened 2,000 years ago. It only makes sense in federal headship that he represented his people and his alone. 
Awesome. Thank y'all. So we got three more uh, scriptures. Uh, how, how, three. I, I'm enjoying this. I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm enjoying this. How, how, how y'all? How, how y'all enjoying this, man? Y'all getting hungry? Yeah. <laughs> I'm good. That's wonderful. So you know, for those listening, you know they they spent uh, you know they did spend a lot of that time talking about the sins of the whole world and who's covered, who's included. But remember, that's because the scripture says that we read that that He Himself is the propitiation for our sins, not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. So that was completely relevant. Um, so the next one, the next one is the Gospel of John, chapter six. Verse forty-four. Slick, you get the first. Uh, you get the first stab at this one as well. And this is Jesus's words right here, saying, "No one can come to me." Matter of fact, hold up. I'll pause. Right